Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hi, you're listening to On the Environment, a podcast production from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. I'm Aaron Rubin, a research assistant at Yale, and I'm in the studio today with Rolling Stone contributing editor Jeff Godell. Jeff is the author of the best-selling book, Big Coal, The Dirty Secret Behind America's Energy Future, and he is in town to serve as the keynote speaker for this year's New Directions and Environmental Law Conference at Yale. His most recent book is an investigation into the controversial science of geoengineering titled How to Cool the Planet, Geoengineering and the Audacious Quest to Fix Earth's Climate. This is the third of three podcasts, and now we're going to talk about geoengineering. Jeff, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So as, as the last of our three sections, I'd love to spend our remaining time today talking about geoengineering, which is the important topic of your latest book. And since your book ca- came out, I think it was two years ago, there seems to be a change in the climate, if you'll excuse the pun, <laughs> around discussing geoengineering. Discussion seemed to be off the table, so to speak, just 10 years ago, even though a lot of the science is not new. But now you sort of see conversations popping up everywhere. Governments and private donors have begun sponsoring high-profile geoengineering research. Um, other journalists are starting to research the topic. Do you do you agree that there is a change? And if so, what do you think is fueling that? Oh, I think there's a huge change. Um, uh, when I first looked into geoengineering, you know, five or six years ago, um, it was something that very few scientists wanted to talk openly about. It was like a, you know, pornography or something. Yeah, it was like this secret thing that maybe we might think about, taboo. but we don't really want to talk about it, you know, over coffee kind of thing. Um, but I think a couple of things have happened. One is obviously the um, urgency of doing something about uh, the climate crisis has gr- only grown. Um, we've seen, you know, things like, you know, extreme weather, these, uh, a lot of these impacts that we're seeing right now making uh, the, the uh, predicament we're in all the more clear to uh, a greater number of people. I think another thing that's happened is that people are, uh, scientists and politicians and others are seeing that we're blowing through these sort of targets of, you know, stabilizing, cutting emissions at enough to stabilize the earth at two degrees Celsius of warming, which was the sort of danger line that for a long time we had this fantasy that we would be able to all Keep come together and you know that these international agreements based on Kyoto would we would we would hammer something out and the, the earth would you know the people of the earth would come together and we would all agree to stop burning coal and we'd all be doing installing solar panels now and we would have this problem under control or at least moving in that direction and I think what's pretty clear now is that ain't happening yeah and so people are starting to think okay so well what would we do what, what are the possibilities of what we could do? And geoengineering falls into that category. And um, the last factor, I think, is that you have people um, like uh, David Keith at Harvard and Ken Caldera at Stanford, scientists who are highly, highly respected scientists who are not advocates of this, but saying, we need to talk about this. They're doing work on it. They're saying, we need to know more about what the real risks are and the benefits and whether those risks and benefits are worth considering. It's a sort of scary place to be on the front line of, of this new uh, discussion. In your book, you mention also that 
the sort of breakdown of climate negotiations at Copenhagen in 2009 was almost a critical moment. Would you, do you still see it that way? Well, I think it was a critical moment in the sense of the crumbling of this sort of international coalition and the crumbling of faith that we would ever hammer something out yeah, confidence. Of, of, this, of this sort. Um, you know, you can. I think that it's pretty obvious when you see what's happened since then, which is basically nothing. Um, and there's, you know, there's no energy and enthusiasm around these kinds of large international agreements anymore. You know, now that people are still talking about the importance of agreements between nations, but um, you know, it seems now there's much more interest and energy around maybe doing a sort of bilateral agreement with China and the United States or something like that. Um, but this whole notion that everyone's going to come together and kind of do the right thing at least on any time scale that's meaningful to, you know, reducing climate risk is not going to happen. So, you know, there's a lot of, and there's, and this is not to minimize it, a lot of really great, interesting stuff that's happening on the local and state right. levels in various places we have. In America, you can't, you know, no national politician can talk about cap and trade right now, but we have, you know, the Reggie Regional tra mm -hmm. Trading Program in the Northeast with seven states. We have California just launched theirs. You know, I mean, there's a lot happening but it's just not happening at the higher levels. For any listeners who haven't yet read your excellent book, are there anything, are there things you want them to know about or think about geoengineering? If we're saying this is the start of discussions, is there a way we can frame them to be more helpful? Well, I mean, I think the most helpful thing to think about, I guess, to say about geoengineering is, you know, to tell you a little bit about my experience, which was that, you know, I, I first heard about this and I thought, the same thing that it, basically any sane person thinks when they hear about this, that this is a crazy idea. And, the, you know, that the clearly the best way to solve the climate crisis is to stop doing the thing that's causing the problem, which is putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. That's the way to do it. Um, but we're not doing that. Um, and so you have to start thinking about, you know, what what might we do? And the, th the tricky and scary thing about geoengineering is that, well, I should say, to be clear, there's two different kinds of geoengineering. Yeah, maybe we should start just giving a little description. of. Yeah. Um, the sort of not-so-scary part of it is, is, is the kind, is various technologies and um, uh, processes that would draw carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So uh, it's a very famous story about um, this California entrepreneur dumping iron into the ocean yeah. to stimulate plankton blooms and suck uh, carbon out of the ocean, and um, there's a lot of you know a lot of debate about whether that works or not. But that is w relatively, despite the problems it could cause with the ultra with the ocean um, nutrient systems and things, it's relatively from a climate point of view that kind of thing is safe. Now, um, David Keith, a engineer at uh, Harvard, is working on a building a machine that that sucks carbon out of CO two out of the atmosphere, basically an artificial tree. And psychologically, this is a, a sort of compelling line. Yeah, so I mean, we it, put it, too much in. There's no danger in this. I mean, right. if you can build a device for three cents that sucks out ten tons of carbon, that's a great thing. I mean, there's no there's no downside to that. You could build then the equivalent of a kind of carbon thermostat for the planet. You could dial the CO two level at whatever you wanted. But of course, we're not there yet. But that right. but that idea is one half of geoengineering is to manipulate the CO two levels by artificially or or 
mechanically drawing it out of the atmosphere. And lots, lots of people are thinking about that. The scary and more interesting thing is um, technologies that would, that would block away sunlight uh, to actually cool the planet. The essentially the same thing as you know, doing what a, uh, an umbrella does, shading the planet. And we know this works because volcanoes do this. Right. Volcanoes put um, uh, sulfur into the atmosphere, those sulfur particles. Uh, stay up there for a year or two, uh, and, it, and it actually cools the planet. Mount Pinatubo did that. Um, so people have been thinking about, well, could we do that artificially? Could we put sulfate particles high up in the stratosphere? You only need to block away about 1% or 2% of the sunlight um, to have a big impact. And, you know, might that be a technology or a way of, of doing this that buys us time? Um, and it's relatively cheap to do. It's not really very difficult to do. Uh, no one's done it yet, of course, but in theory, it's not very difficult. So um, it's worth thinking about. And, but the reason it's really worth thinking about is because, um, like nuclear weapons and things, this is not. This can be done by a lone actor or a lone state. Because it's know. so inexpensive, and we've got the technology now. Right. So you know, you know, uh, China could decide to do it. Yeah. Or, you know, the island states uh, who are pissed off at the West for, for basically, you know, not cutting emissions. And they're the first going to be the first to go. You could imagine 20 of the island states getting together and finding a couple of sympathetic billionaires and doing this on their own. I mean, there's the mind reels with the possibilities of this. And we have no governance structure about this, yeah. no legal structure, no thinking about this in any kind of coherent way. Um, so the prospect of that... Um, brings up a lot of urgency to find out, okay, what is this? Does it work? How would we do it? How would we stop it? What is the legal framework? What kind of international treaties are, you know, are, are in jurisdiction here, if any? Um, yeah, is there a precedent for this kind of action? Right, right. Certainly on a scientific front, we can imagine ways to start pushing new research forward. But... Right. And the big flashpoint right now you know, on geoengineering uh, is field testing. So, oh, interesting. So, um, you know, there's been a lot of climate modeling done, a lot of really good models, a lot of, and some of them show that, you know, a, a world with particles in the stratosphere um, uh, are, is, is closer to a pre-industrial climate than the one we're heading into. So, in, in other words, that it might be, you know, better to what we would consider, a, closer to what we would consider a normal climate than... Really? than you know, one with a doubling of CO2 right. emissions. Right. But there's still, even though we know that, you know, and we know that in the big picture this works because, you know, volcanoes do it, there's a lot still of sort of devil in the details of, okay, how do you actually spray the particles out? How do they distribute? How much can you control and all that? And a number of really prominent, high-profile scientists right now, I mean, literally right now, want to do some field tests. They want to go up and go over the desert in Arizona and, take a plane up and spray particles into the atmosphere and see what it does and how they distribute, how what effect they have on the sunlight, how long they linger, and begin to work out the details of this. Um, but a lot of the anti-environmental, uh, environmental activists who are vehemently against this see this as a slippery slope and right. see it like, you know, development of nuclear weapons. Once you start developing them and you get NASA involved and all of that, you're soon going to have a full-scale geoengineering project going. And then once that geoengineering project is going, it's going to get deployed. So they're trying to stop it now before the slippery slope even begins and say no testing whatsoever. Right. Well, this is something you talk about in your book, which is the concern that 
the implication of having geoengineering solutions is we're going to reach for them right away. Right. And, and certainly we can see a time if we don't make large reductions soon when it'll be very compelling. Um, equally scary is no mitigation. We don't try to reduce emissions at all because we know we have these solutions. Right. Um, but that's a long time off. And I think one of the things you're arguing is we need to understand these a lot more regardless of, of that future consequence. Yeah, I think we need to understand them a lot more because I think that it that, you know, human history has shown that when technology gets developed it kind of gets used and yeah. um someone is going to do this. Um and the more we know about the risks and benefits of this before that someone does it, um, the better we are. Um and I think that there's a very strong argument for kind of allowing field testing under kind of with legitimate scientists under, you know, a kind of uh, uh, rigorous um, uh, framework of rules and things like that. Well, and it's, it's, in a way, it's not as controversial as some things we've been talking about because we've, we've been taking these particles out of our air for a long time. There's sort of an irony is that cleaning up some of our more polluted airways has sort of exacerbated climate change because we've taken these light reflecting, you know, human health harmful particles out. Um, so we sort of, we've been there and now we're right. saying, let's see what that looks like higher up. Exactly. It's very true that as we clean up the air, we take off this sort of masking of these particles. But to be clear, these particles that they're talking about using for this are much higher up, yep. uh, up in the stratosphere. And they are also much less, because they're so high, there's much less number of them. Oh. So, so the the impact on human health, for example, you know, obviously coal plant pollution that puts these particles up in the, you know, just in the near atmosphere is very deadly. And a lot of people die of particle pollution. Uh, it's one of the biggest killers you know, in the in, world. Yeah. So, but this is not like that. Um, this is way up in the stratosphere, tiny amount of particles that will rain out over years. Not to say there will be no public health impacts, mm -hmm. because that would be... Uh, wrong, but very, very minor, and in comparison to what coal plants do. Right. There's a sort of tangent, but there's there's a well-described phenomenon in human psychology that says how you frame a problem will change how receptive you are to a given course of action. Um, I'm curious if you think that your latest book, How to Cool the Earth, was somehow a natural response to the book you wrote before, Big Coal. Would you have written a fundamentally different book if instead of looking at the coal industry, you'd written a book about growth in the solar industry or, or something that gives a more hopeful impression? Uh, I think, yes. I mean, I do think that, you know, there's no question that, um, that the geoengineering book grew out of the coal book because I, at the conclusion of the coal book, I mean... Um, I came to the understanding that, you know, we're not going to stop burning coal in the world. I don't mean America. Right. The world is not going to stop burning coal anytime soon. And that the kind of conventional ideas of how we're going to fix that by this thing called carbon capture and storage, where you uh, capture the carbon that comes out of the stack, the CO2 that comes out of the stack, and then bury it underground near the power plant, which is the sort of widely accepted sort of industry solutions for how we're going to burn coal in a world that's constrained by carbon is not going to work either because it's way too expensive and no one's ever going to do it. Um, so I thought, okay, well, so what are we going to do and what's going to happen? Yeah, and that naturally led me to geoengineering. Um, 
But there's one other factor involved, and that is my Silicon Valley um, uh, background, which, you know, Silicon Valley, the, the working idea is that, you know, um, you know, technology can solve our problems. And, we can um, innovate. Right. And, and, you know, people in Silicon Valley actually love the idea of geoengineering because it's like hmm. this big system to hack. Um, yeah, and, it's a whole um, new realm of activity. Right, right. I mean, and you know, people think because I wrote a book, a book about geoengineering, I don't believe in you know solar and wind or something. I mean, I absolutely do, and I think that that's amazing, and uh, and I think that that is you know where the future is going. But I just think that the uh, climate crisis is coming down on us very fast, and we're not going to save ourselves uh, in the short term with solar panels. Uh, in the long term, we certainly are, and um, but not in the short term. And I think that you know. Um, at some point, sometime soon, on maybe not in America, but somewhere, there's going to be a, you know, the equivalent of a Hurricane Sandy, whether it's a, a, dr a long drought or a food shortage or something, where people are going to say, okay, this is happening. We have to do something about it now. Yeah. And if, if, if a politician is in a room full of people who are screaming at him, saying, we have to do something about this now, he's not going to say, okay, we're going to build more solar panels. He's going to talk, I mean... He could say that, but th that's not going to help now. What's going to help? What the only, the only possible solution to help tomorrow would be to do some kind of geoengineering project. And I think that for better or for worse, I'm not saying that they should, but for better or for worse, the temptation is there to move in that direction. And I think that uh, there's a certain kind of inevitability to it. Yeah. Well, we've already seen rogue experiments. Yeah. You mentioned the entrepreneur who dumped iron into the ocean. Yeah. You know, maybe we can imagine these are going to be more frequent. Yeah, I mean, I think people are starting to play with the idea. I, mean, I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, I think yeah. that as long as it's done by good scientists, and I think that's what part of the reason why I wrote the book, is I think that it should be in the open. I don't think this should be some weird closet thing that people are thinking right. about. It's possible. It's doable. It may or may not work the way we think it will, but we need to discuss it. We need to know if this is a kind of backup plan or not. Uh, how dangerous is this really, you know? Uh, what are we really talking about here? And the only way to find that out is to plunge ahead into actual research and experiments. Yeah, and it's possible it won't work, and we've sort of denied this conversation long enough that right. it's in your mind, oh, maybe, you know, there's always geoengineering we right. could think about. And one of the things with geoengineering is people talk about, oh, you want to mess with the climate, you know? Yeah. And it's like, excuse me, <laughs> what have we been doing since yeah. the industrial, well, since human civilization? I mean, we've been messing with the climate for a very long time. The question is, can we kind of get better at messing with it? Can we learn a little bit about how the levers and pulleys of the system work? Um, it's not like this is the equivalent of building condos in the redwoods, you know? I mean, right. we're already dumping so much greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. We're already pushing it all, all out of whack already. This yeah, this is, is not just, a natural system we're living exactly, in. Exactly, exactly. Well, Jeff, this has been terrific. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me.